Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 14 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 14. All is clear. This is my daughter, Judge Ostrander. Ruther, this is the judge. The introduction took place at the outer gates, whither the judge had gone to receive them. Ruther threw aside her veil, and looked up into the face bent courteously towards her. It had no look of Oliver. Somehow, she felt glad. She could hardly have restrained herself if he had met her gaze with Oliver's eyes. They were fine eyes notwithstanding, piercing by nature, but just now, misty was a feeling that took away all her fear. He was going to like her. She saw it in every trembling line of his countenance, and at the thought a smile rose to her lips which, if fleeting, lent such an ethereal aspect to her beauty that he forgave Oliver then and there for a love which never could be crowned, but which henceforth could no longer be regarded by him as despicable. With a courteous gesture he invited them in, but stopping to lock one gate before leading them through the other. Mrs. Scoville had time to observe that, since her last visit with its accompanying inroad of the populace. The two openings which at this point gave access to the walk between the fences had been closed up with boards so rude and dingy that they must have come from some old lumber pile in attic or cellar. The judge detected her looking at them. "'I have cut off my nightly promenade,' said he. "'With youth in the house, more cheerful habits must prevail.' "'Tomorrow I shall have my lawn cut, and if I must walk after sundown, I will walk there.' The two women exchanged glances. Perhaps their gloomy anticipations were not going to be realized. But once within the house, the judge showed embarrassment. He was conscious of its unfitness for their fastidious taste, and yet he had not known how to improve matters. In his best days he had concerned himself very little with household affairs, and for the last few years he had not given a thought to anything outside his own rooms. Bella had done all, and Bella was preeminently a cook, not a general house servant. How would these women regard the disorder and the dust? "'I have few comforts to offer,' said he, opening a door at his right, and then hastily closing it again. This part of the house is, as you see, completely dismantled and not very clean. But you shall have carte blanche to arrange to your liking one of these rooms for your sitting-room and parlor. There is furniture in the attic, and you may buy freely whatever else is necessary. I don't want to discourage little Ruther. As for your bedrooms, he stopped, hemmed a little, and flushed a vivid red as he pointed up the dingy flight of uncarpeted stairs towards which he had led them. They are above, but it is with shame I admit that I have not gone above this floor for many years. Consequently, I don't know how it looks up there, or whether you could even find towels and things. Perhaps you will go up first, Mrs. Scoville. 
I will stay here while you take a look. I really couldn't have a strange cleaning woman here or anyone who would make remarks. Have I counted too much on your good nature? No, not at all. In fact, you simply arouse all the housekeeping instincts within me. I'll be down in a minute. Ruther, I leave you with the judge. She ran lightly up. The next instant they heard her sneeze. Then they caught the sound of a window rattling up, followed by a streak of light falling slantwise across the dismal stairs. The judge drew a breath of relief and led Ruther towards the door at the end of the hall. This is the way to the dining room and kitchen, he explained. I have been accustomed to having my meals served in my own room, but after this I shall join you at table. Here, he continued, leading her up to the iron door, is the entrance to my den. You may knock here if you want me, but there is a curtain beyond, which no one lifts but myself. You understand, my dear, and will excuse an old man's eccentricities? She smiled, rejoicing only in the caressing voice, and in the yearning, almost fatherly manner with which he surveyed her. I quite understand, said she, and so will mother. Ruther, he now observed with a strange intermixture of gentleness and authority, there is one thing I wish to say to you at the very start. I may grow to love you. God knows that a little affection would be a welcome change in my life. But I want you to know and know now that all the love in the world will not change my decision as to the impropriety of a match between you and my son Oliver. That settled, there is no reason why all should not be clear between us. All is clear. Faint and far off the word sounded. Though she was standing so near, he could have laid his hand on her shoulder. Then she gave one sob, as though in saying this she heard the last clod fall upon what would never see resurrection again in this life, and lifting her head, looked him straight in the eye with a decision and a sweetness which bowed his spirit and caused his head in turn to fall upon his breast. What a father can do for a child, I will do for you, he murmured, and led her back to her mother, who was now coming downstairs. A week, and Deborah Scoville had evolved a home out of chaos, that is, within limits. There was one door on that upper story which she had simply opened and shut. Nor had she entered the judge's rooms or even offered to do so. The ban which had been laid upon her daughter, she felt applied equally to herself, that is, for the present. Later, there must be a change. So particular a man as the judge would soon find himself too uncomfortable to endure the lack of those attentions which he had been used to in Bella's day. He had not even asked for clean sheets. And sometimes she had found herself wondering, with a strange shrinking of her heart, if his bed was ever made, or whether he had not been driven at times to lie down in his clothes. She had some reason for these doubtful conclusions. In her rallies through the house, she had come upon Bella's room. It was in a loft over the kitchen, and she had been much amazed at its condition. In some respects, it looked as decent as she could expect. But in the matter of bed and bedclothes, it presented an aspect somewhat startling. The clothes were there, tossed in a heap on the floor, but there was no bed in sight nor anything which could have served as such. It had been dragged out, 
evidences of this were everywhere, dragged out and down the narrow twisted staircase, which was the only medium of communication between the lower floor and this loft. As she noted the marks made by its passage down the steps, the unhappy vision rose before her of the judge, immaculate in attire and unaccustomed of hand, tugging at this bed and alternately pushing and pulling it by main strength down this contracted, many-cornered staircase. A smile, half pitiful, half self-scornful, curved her lips as she remembered the rat-tat-tat she had heard on that dismal night when she clung listening to the fence and wondered now if it had not been the bumping of this cot sliding from step to step. But no, the repeated stroke of a hammer is unmistakable. He had played the carpenter that night as well as the mover, and with no visible results. Mystery still reigned in the house for all the charm and order she had brought into it, a mystery which deeply interested her, and which she yet hoped to solve, notwithstanding its remoteness from the real problem of her existence. End of chapter 14. All is clear. Chapter 15 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 15 The Picture. Night, and Deborah Scoville waited anxiously for Ruther to sleep, that she might brood undisturbed over a new and disturbing event which for the whole day had shaken her out of her wanted poise and given, as it were, a new phase to her life in this house. Already had she stepped several times to her daughter's room and looked in, only to meet Ruther's unquiet eye turned towards hers in silent inquiry. Was her own uneasiness infectious? Was the child determined to share her vigil? She would wait a little longer this time and see. Their rooms were over the parlor and thus as far removed as possible from the judge's den. In her own, which was front, she felt at perfect ease and it was without any fear of disturbing either him or Ruther, that she finally raised her window and allowed the cool wind to soothe her heated cheeks. How calm the aspect of the lawn and its clustering shrubs, dimly seen, though they were through the leaves of the vines she had but partially clipped. She felt the element of peace, which comes with perfect quiet, and was fain to forget for a while the terrors it so frequently conceals. The moon, which had been invisible up to this moment, emerged from scurrying clouds as she quietly watched the scene, and in an instant her peace was gone, and all the thronging difficulties of her position came rushing back upon her in full force, as all the details of the scene, so mercifully hidden just now, flashed again upon her vision. Perched as she was in a window overlooking the lane, she had but to lift her eyes from the double fence, that symbol of sad seclusion, to light on the trees rising above that unspeakable ravine. Black with memories she felt strangely like forgetting tonight. Beyond, how it stood out on the bluff, it had never seemed to stand out more threateningly. The bifurcated mass of dismal ruin from which men had turned their eyes these many years now but the moon loved it, caressed it, dallied with it, lighting up its toppling chimney and empty, staring gable. 
There, where the black streak could be seen, she had stood with the judge in that struggle of wills which had left its scars upon them both to this very day. There, hidden but always seen by those who remembered the traditions of the place, moldered away the walls of that old closet where the timorous, God-stricken suicide had breathed out his soul. She had stood in it only the other day, pent from outsider's view by the judge's outstretched arms. Then she had no mind for bygone horrors. Her own tragedy weighed too heavily upon her. But tonight, as she gazed, fascinated, anxious to forget herself, anxious to indulge in any thought which would relieve her from dwelling on the question she must settle before she slept, she allowed her wonder and her revulsion to have free course. Instead of ignoring, she would recall the story of the place as it had been told her when she first came to settle in its neighborhood. Spencer's Folly. Well, it had been that, and Spencer's den of dissipation, too. There were great tales, but it was not of these she was thinking, but of the night of storm, of the greatest storm of which any record remained in Shelby, when the wind tore down branches and toppled down chimneys, when cattle were smitten in the field and men on the highway, when the old bridge, since replaced, buckled up and sank in the roaring flood it could no longer span, and the bluff towering overhead flared into flame, and the house which was its glory was smitten apart by the descending bolt as by a titan sword and blazed like a beacon to the sky. This was long before she herself had come to Shelby, but she had been told the story so often that it was quite as vivid to her as if she had been one of the innumerable men and women who had crowded the glistening, swimming streets to view the spectacle of destruction. The family had been gone for months, and so no pity mingled with the excitement. Not till the following day did the awful nature of the event break in its full horror upon the town. Among the ruins, in a closet which the flames had spared, they found hunched up in one corner the body of a man, in whose seared throat a wound appeared, which had not been made by lightning or fire. Spencer, Spencer himself, returned they knew not how, to die of the self-inflicted wound in the dark corner of his grand but neglected dwelling. And this was what made the horror of the place till the tragedy of the opposite hollow added crime to crime, and the spot became outlawed to all sensitive citizens. Folly and madness and the vengeance of high heaven upon unhallowed walls spoke to her from that towering mass, bathed though it was just now in liquid light under the impartial moon. But as she continued to survey it, the clouds came trooping up once more, and the vision was wiped out, and with it all memory save those of a nearer trouble, a more pressing necessity. Withdrawing from the window, she crept again to Ruther's room and peered carefully in. Innocence was asleep at last. Not a movement disturbed the closed lids on the wax-like cheek. Even the breath came so softly that it hardly lifted the youthful breast. Repose the most perfect and in the form of all others the sweetest to a tender mother lay before her and touched her already yearning heart to tears. Lighting a candle, 
and fielding it with her hand, she gazed long and earnestly at Ruther's sweet face. Yes, she was right. Sorrow was slowly sapping the fountain of her darling's youth. If Ruther was to be saved, hope must come soon. With a sob and a prayer, the mother left the room, and locking herself into her own, sat down at last to face a new perplexity, the monstrous enigma which had come into her life. It had followed in natural sequence from a proposal made by the judge that some attention should be given his long-neglected rooms. He had said on rising from the breakfast-table, the words are more or less important, I am really sorry to trouble you, Mrs. Scoville, but if you have time this morning, will you clean up my study before I leave? The carriage is ordered for half-past nine. The task was one she had long desired to perform, and would have urged upon him daily had she dared. But the limitations he set for its accomplishment struck her aghast. Do you mean that you wish to remain there while I work? You will be choked, Judge. No more than I have been for the last two days. You may enter any time. And going in, he left the door open behind him. He will lock it when he goes out, she commented to herself. I had better hasten. Given Ruther the rest of the work to do, she presently appeared before him with pail and broom and a pile of fresh linen. Nothing more commonplace could be imagined, but to her, if not to him, there underlay this especial act of ordinary housewifery, a possible enlightenment on a subject which had held the whole community in a state of curiosity for years. She was going to enter the room which had been barred from public sight by poor Bella's dying body. She was going to see, or had he only meant that she was to have her way with the library, the room where she had already been, and much of which she remembered. The doubt gave a tremulous eagerness to her step, and caused her eye to wander immediately to that forbidden corner soon as she had stepped over the threshold. The bedroom door was open, proof that she was expected to enter there. Meanwhile, she felt the eye of the judge upon her, and endeavored to preserve a perfect composure and to seek the curious and inquiring woman in the diligent housekeeper. But she could not, quite. Two facts of which she immediately became cognizant prevented this. First, the great room before her presented a bare floor, whereas on her first visit it had been very decently, if not cheerfully, covered by a huge carpet rug. Secondly, the judge's chair, which had once looked immovable, had been dragged forward into such a position that he could keep his own eye on the bedroom door. Manifestly, she was not to be allowed to pursue her duties unwatched. Certainly, she had to take more than one look at the everyday implements she carried to retain that balance of judgment which should prevent her from becoming the dupe of her own expectations. I do not expect you to clean up here as thoroughly as you have your own rooms upstairs, he remarked as she passed him. You haven't the time or I the patience for too many strokes of the broom, and Mrs. Scoville, he called out as she slipped through the doorway, leave the door open and keep away as much as possible from the side of the room where I have nailed up the curtain. I had rather not have that touched. She turned with a smile and nodded. She felt that she had been set to work with a string tied around her feet. Not touch the curtain? Why, that was the one thing in the room she wanted to touch. 
for in it she not only saw the carpet which had been taken up from the floor of the study but a possible screen behind which anything might lurk even his redoubtable secret or had it another and much simpler explanation might it not have been hung there merely as a shield to the window the room must have a window and there was none to be seen elsewhere it would be like him to shut out light and air she would ask there is no window she observed looking back at the judge no was his short reply slowly she set down her pail one thing was settled it was bella's cot she saw before her a cot without any sheets these had been left behind in the dead negro's room and the judge had been sleeping just as she had feared wrapped in a rug and with uncovered pillow this pillow was his own it had not been brought down with the bed she hastily slipped a cover on it and without calling any further attention to her act began to make up the bed conscious that the papers he made of faint of reading were but a cover for his watchfulness she moved about in a matter-of-fact way that did not spare him the clouds of dust which presently rose before her broom she could have managed it more deftly would have done so at another time but it was her express intention just now to make him move back out of her way if only to give her an opportunity to disturb by a backward stroke of her broom the folds of the carpet rug and learn if she could what lay hidden behind it but the judge was impervious to discomfort he coughed and shook his head but did not budge an inch before she had begun to put things in order the clock struck the half hour oh she protested with a pleading glance his way i'm not half done there is another day to follow he dryly remarked rising and taking a key from his pocket the act expressed his wishes and she was proceeding to carry out her things when a quick sliding noise from the wall she was passing drew her attention and caused her to spring forward in an involuntary effort to catch a picture which had slipped its cord and was falling to the floor a shout from the judge of stand aside let me come reached her too late she had grasped and lifted the picture and seen but first let me explain this picture was not like the others hanging about it was a veiled one from some motive of precaution or characteristic desire for concealment on the part of the judge it had been closely wrapped about in heavy brown paper before being hung and in the encounter which ensued between the falling picture and the spear of an image standing on a table underneath this paper had received a slit through which deborah had been given a glimpse of the canvas beneath the shock of what she saw would have unnerved a less courageous woman it was a highly finished portrait of oliver in his youth with a broad band of black painted directly across the eyes end of chapter fifteen the picture chapter sixteen of dark hollow by anna katherine green this librivox recording is in the public domain read by doreen marcott chapter sixteen don't don't in recalling the startling moment deborah wondered as much at her own aplomb as at that of judge ostrander not only had she succeeded in suppressing all recognition of what had thus been discovered to her but had carried her powers of self-repression so far as to offer and with good grace too 
to assist him in rehanging the picture, this perfection of acting had its full reward. With equal composure he excused her from the task, and adding some expression of regret at his well-known carelessness in not looking better after his effects, bowed her from the room with only a slight increase of his usual courteous reserve. But later, when thought came, and with it a certain recollections, what significance the incident acquired in her mind, and what a long line of terrors it brought in its train! It was no casual act, this defacing of a son's well-loved features. It had a meaning, a dark and desperate meaning. Nor was the study wall the natural home of this picture, an unfaded square which she had noted on the wallpaper of the inner room showed where its original place had been. There, in full view of the broken-hearted father when he woke, and in darksome watchfulness while he slept, it had played its heavy part in his long torment. A galling reminder of what? It was to answer this question, to face this new view of Oliver and the bearing it had on the relations she had hoped to establish between him and Reuther, that she had waited for the house to be silent and her child asleep. If the defacing marks she had seen meant that the cause of separation between father and son lay in some past fault of Oliver himself, serious enough for such a symbol to be necessary to reconcile the judge to their divided lives, she should know it, and know it soon. The night should not pass without that review of the past by which alone she could now judge Oliver Ostrander. She had spoken of him as noble. She had forced herself to believe him so, and in profession and in many of his actions he had been so. But had she ever been wholly pleased with him? To go back to their first meeting, what impression had he made upon her then? Had it been altogether favorable, and such as would be natural in one of his repute? Hardly. But then the shock of her presentation to one who had possibly seen her under other and shameful conditions had been great, and her judgment could scarcely have full play while her whole attention was absorbed in watching for some hint of recognition on his part. But when this apprehension had vanished, when quite assured that he had failed to see in the widowed Mrs. Averill, the wife of the man who had died a felon's death in Shelby, had her spirits risen and her eyes cleared to his great merits as she had heard them extolled by people of worth and intellectual standing? Alas, no. There had been something in his look, a lack of spontaneity which had not fitted in with her expectations. And in the months which followed, when as Reuther's suitor she saw him often and intimately, how had she regarded him then? More leniently, of course, in her gratification at prospects so far beyond any she had a right to expect for her child, she had taken less note of the successful man's defects, peculiarities of conversation and manner, which had seemed to bespeak a soul far from confident in its hopes resolved themselves into the uneasy moods of a man who had a home he never visited, a father he never saw. But had she been really justified in this easy view of things? If the break between his father and himself was the result of nothing deeper than a difference of temperament, tastes, or even opinions, why should he have shrunk with such morbid distaste from all allusions to that father?
Was it natural? She may have looked upon it as being so in the heyday of her hopes, and when she had a secret herself to hide. But could she so degrade her judgment now? And what of his conduct towards Reuther? Had that been all her mother-heart could ask of a man of a seemingly high instincts? She had assured his father in her first memorable interview with him that it had been perfectly honorable and above all reproach. And so it had been as far as mere words went. But words are not all. It is a tender look, the manly bearing, the tone which springs from the heart which tells in great crises. And these had all been lacking. Generous as he attempted to show himself, there was nothing in his bearing to match that of Reuther as she took her quiet leave of him and entered upon a fate so much bitterer for her than for him. This lack of grace in him had not passed unnoted by her even at the time, but being herself so greatly in fault, she had ascribed it to the recoil of a proud man from the dread of social humiliation. But it took another aspect under the strong light just thrown upon his early life by her discovery in the room below. Nothing but some act, unforgivable and unforgettable, would account for that black mark drawn between a father's eyes and his son's face. No bar sinister could tell a stronger tale. But this was no bar sinister. Rather, the deliberate stigmatizing of one yet loved, but banned for a reason which was little short of... Here, her conclusion stopped. She would not allow her imagination to carry her any farther. Unhappy mother, just as she saw something like a prospect of releasing her long-dead husband from the odium of an unjust sentence, to be shaken by this new doubt as to the story and character of the man for whose union with her beloved child she was so anxiously struggling. Should it not make her pause? Should she not show wisdom in giving a different meaning from any she had hitherto done to that stern and inexorable dictum of the father that no marriage between the two could or should ever be considered? It was a question for which no ready answer seemed possible in her present mood. Better to await the time when some move had to be made or some definite decision reached. Now she must rest. Rest and not think. Have any of us ever made the like acknowledgement and then tried to sleep? In half an hour Mrs. Scoville was again upon her feet, this time with a determination which ignored the hour and welcomed night as though it were broad noonday. There was a room on this upper floor into which neither she nor Reuther had ever stepped. She had once looked in, but that was all. Tonight, because she could not sleep, because she must not think, she was resolved to enter it, Oliver's room, left as he had left it years before. What might it not tell of a past concerning which she longed to be reassured? The father had laid no restrictions upon her in giving her this floor for her use. Rights which he ignored she could afford to appropriate. Dressing sufficiently for warmth, she lit a candle, put out the light in her own room, and started down the hall. If she paused on reaching the threshold of this long closed room, it was but natural. The clock on Ruther's mantel had sent its three clear strokes through the house as her hand fell on the knob, and to her fearing heart, and now well-awakened imagination, these strokes that sounded in her ear like a 
Don't, don't. The silence, so gruesome, now that this shrill echo had ceased, was poor preparation for her task. Yet would she have welcomed any sound, the least which could have been heard? No, that were a worse alternative than silence, and relieved of that momentary obsession consequent upon an undertaking of doubtful outcome, she pushed the door fully open and entered. A smother of dust, an odor of decay, a lack of all order in the room's arrangements and furnishings, even a general disarray, hallowed, if not affected, by time. For all this she was prepared. But not for the wild confusion, the inconceivable litter, and all the other signs she saw about her of a boy's mad packing and reckless departure. Here her imagination, so lively at times, had failed her, and as her eye became accustomed to the semi-obscurity, and she noted the heaps of mouldering clothing lying amid overturned chairs and trampled draperies, she felt her heart grow cold with a nameless dread she could only hope to counteract by quick and impulsive action. But what action? Was it for her to touch, to rearrange, to render clean and orderly this place of unknown memories? She shrank with inconceivable distaste from the very idea of such meddling, and though she saw and noted all, she did not put out so much as a finger towards any object there till there was an inner door, and this some impulse drove her to open. A small closet stood revealed, empty but for one article. When she saw this article, she gave a great gasp. Then she uttered a low, Pshaw! and with a shrug of the shoulders, drew back and flung to the door. But she opened it again. She had to. One cannot live in hideous doubt without an effort to allay it. She must look at that small black article again. Look at it with candle in hand. See for herself that her fears were without foundation. That a shadow had made the outline on the wall which... She found herself laughing. There was nothing else to do. She, with thoughts like these, she, Ruther's mother. Verily, the early hours this morning were unsuited for any such work as this. She would go back to her own room and bed, but she only went as far as the bureau, where she had left the candlestick, which having seized, she returned to the closet, and slowly, reluctantly reopened the door. Before her on the wall hung a cap, and it was no shadow which gave it that look like her husband's. The broad peak was there. She had not been mistaken. It was the duplicate of the one she had picked up in the attic of the Claymore Inn when that inn was simply a tavern. Well, and what if it was? Such was her thought a moment later. She would take down the cap, set it before her, and look at it till her brain grew clear of its follies. But after she had it in her hand, she found herself looking anywhere but at the cap. She stared at the floor, the walls about, the desk she had mechanically approached. She even noticed the books lying about on the shelves before her, and took down one or two to glance at the title pages in a blind curiosity she could not account for the next minute. Then she found herself looking into a drawer half drawn out and filled with all sorts of heterogeneous articles, sealing wax, a roll of pins, a penholder, a knife, a knife! 
Why should he recoil again at that? Nothing could be more ordinary than to find a knife in the desk drawer of a young man. The fact was not worth the thought. Yet before she knew it, her fingers were creeping towards this knife, had picked it up from among other scattered articles, had closed upon it, let it drop again, only to seize hold of it yet more determinedly and carry it straight to the light. Who spoke? Had anyone spoken? Was there any sound in the air at all? She heard none, yet the sense of sound was in her ear, as though it had been and passed. When the glance she threw about her came back to her outstretched hand, she knew that the cry, if cry it were, had been within, and that the echoes of the room had remained undisturbed. The knife was lying open on her palm, and from one of the blades the end had been nipped. Just enough of it to match. Was she mad? She thought so for a moment. Then she laid down the knife close against the cap, and contemplated them both for more minutes than she ever reckoned, and the stillness, which had been profound, became deeper yet. Not even Ruther's clock sounded its small note. The candle fluttering low in its socket roused her at last from her abstraction. Catching up the two articles which had so enthralled her, she restored the one to the closet, the other to the drawer, and with swift but silent step, regained her own room, where she buried her head in her pillow, weeping and praying until the morning light, breaking in upon her grief, awoke her to the obligations of her position, and the necessity of silence concerning all the experiences of this night. End of chapter 16. Don't. Don't. Chapter 17 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 17 Unwelcome Truths. Silence. Yes, silence was the one and only refuge remaining to her. Yet, after a few days, the constant self restraint which it entailed ate like a canker into her peace and undermined a strength which she had always considered inexhaustible. Ruther began to notice her pallor, and the judge to look grave. She was forced to complain of a cold, and in this she was truthful enough, to account for her alternations of feverish impulse and deadly lassitude. The trouble she had suppressed was having its quiet revenge. Should she continue to lie inert and breathless under the threatening hand of fate, or risk precipitating the doom she sought to evade, by proceeding with inquiries upon the result of which she could no longer calculate. She recalled the many mistakes made by those who had based their conclusions upon circumstantial evidence, her husband's conviction, in fact, and made up her mind to brave everything by having this matter out with Mr. Black. Then the pendulum swung back, and she found that she could not do this because deep down in her heart there burrowed a monstrous doubt how born or how cherished she would not question, which Mr. Black, with an avidity she could not combat, would at once detect and pounce upon. Better silence and a slow death than that. But was there no medium course? Could she not learn from some other source where Oliver had been on the night of that old-time murder? 
Miss Weeks was a near neighbor and saw everything. Miss Weeks never forgot. To Miss Weeks she would go. With instructions to Luther calculated to keep that diligent child absorbed and busy in her absence, she started out upon her quest. She had reached the first gate, passed it, and was on the point of opening the second one, when she saw on the walk before her a small slip of brown paper. Lifting it, she perceived upon it an almost illegible scrawl, which she made out to read thus. For Mrs. Scoville, do not go wandering all over the town for clues. Look closer home and below. You remember the old scene about jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Let your daughter be warned. It is better to be singed than consumed. Warned? Ruther? Better be singed than consumed? What madness was this? How singed and how consumed? Then, because Deborah's mind was quick, it all flashed upon her, bowing her in spirit to the ground. There had been singed by the knowledge of her father's ignominy. She would be consumed if inquiry were carried further, and its ignominy transferred to the proper culprit. Consumed! There was but one person whose disgrace could consume Ruther. Oliver alone could be meant. The doubts she had tried to suppress from her own mind were shared by others. Others! The discovery overpowered her, and she caught herself crying aloud in utter self-abandonment. I will not go to Miss Weeks. I will take Ruther and fly to some wilderness so remote and obscure that we can never be found. Yet in five minutes she was crossing the road, her face composed, her manner genial, her tongue ready for any encounter. The truth must be hers at all hazards. If it could be found here, then here would she seek it. Her long struggle with fate had brought to the fore every latent power she possessed. One stroke on the tiny brass knocker, old-fashioned and quaint like everything else in this dollhouse, brought Miss Weeks' small and animated figure to the door. She had seen Mrs. Scoville coming and was ready with her greeting. A dog from the big house across the way would have been welcomed there. The eager little seamstress had never forgotten her hour in the library with the half-unconscious judge. "'Mrs. Scoville!' she exclaimed, fluttering and leading the way into the best room. "'How very kind you are to give me this chance for making my apologies. You know we have met before.' "'Have we?' Mrs. Scoville did not remember, but she smiled her best smile and was gratified to note the look of admiration with which Miss Weeks surveyed her more than tasty dress, before she raised her eyes to meet the smile to whose indefinable charms so many had succumbed. It is a long time since I lived here, Deborah proceeded as soon as she saw that she had this woman too in her net. The friends I had then I scarcely hoped to have now. My trouble was of the kind which isolates one completely. I am glad to have you acknowledge an old acquaintance. It makes me feel less lonely in my new life. Mrs. Scoville, I am only too happy. It was bravely said, for the little woman was in a state of marked embarrassment. Could it be that her visitor had not recognized her as the person who had accosted her on that memorable morning she first entered Judge Ostrander's forbidden gates? I have been told, thus Deborah easily proceeded, 
that for a small house yours contains a most wonderful assortment of interesting objects where did you ever get them my father was a collector on a very small scale of course and my mother had a passion for hoarding which prevented anything from going out of this house after it had once come into it and a great many strange things have come into it there have even been bets made as to the finding or not finding of a given object under this roof pardon me perhaps i bore you not at all it's very interesting but what about the bets oh just this one day two men were chaffing each other in one of the hotel lobbies and the conversation turning upon what this house held one of them wagered that he knew of something i could not fish out of my attic and when the other asked what he said an aeroplane why he didn't say a locomotive i don't know but he said an aeroplane and the other taking him up they came here together and put me the question straight mrs scoville you may not believe it but my good friend won that bet years ago when people were just beginning to talk about air sailing machines my brother who was visiting me amused his leisure hours in putting together something he called a flyer and what is more he went up in it too but he came down so rapidly that he kept quite still about it and it fell to me to lug the broken thing in so when these gentlemen asked to see an aeroplane i took them into a lean-to where i store my least desirable things and there pointed out a mass of wings and bits of tangled wire saying as dramatically as i could there she is and they first stared then laughed and when one complained that's a ruin not an airplane i answered with all the demureness possible and what is any aeroplane but a ruin in prospect this has reached the ruin stage that's all so the bet was paid and my reputation sustained don't you find it a little amusing i do indeed smiled deborah now if i wanted to make the test i should take another course from these men i should not pick out something strange or big or unlikely i should choose some everyday object some little matter she paused as if to think what little matter asked the other complacently my husband once had a cap mused mrs scoville thoughtfully it had an astonishingly broad peak in front have you a cap like that mrs weeks eyes opened she stared in some consternation at mrs scoville who hastened to say you wonder that i can mention my husband perhaps you will not be so surprised when i tell you that in my eyes he is a martyr and quite guiltless of the crime for which he was punished you think that there was real surprise in the manner of the questioner mrs scoville's brow cleared she was pleased at this proof that her affairs had not yet reached the point of general gossip miss weeks i am a mother i have a young and lovely daughter can i look in her innocent eyes and believe her father to have so forgotten his responsibilities as to overshadow her life with crime no i will not believe it circumstances were in favor of his conviction but he never lifted the stick which struck down algernon etheridge miss weeks 
who had sat quite still during the utterance of these remarks, fidgeted about at their close, with what appeared to be the speaker, a sudden and quite welcome relief. Oh, she murmured, and said no more. It was not a topic she found easy of discussion. Let us go back to the cap, suggested Deborah, with another of her fascinating smiles. Are you going to show me one such as I have described? Let me see. A man's cap with an extra broad peak. Mrs. Scoville, I fear that you have caught me. There are caps hanging up in various closets, but I don't remember any with a peak beyond the ordinary. Yet they are worn. You have seen such? A red spot sprang out on the faded cheek of the woman as she answered impulsively, Oh, yes. Young Mr. Oliver Ostrander used to wear one. I wish I had asked him for it, she pursued naively. I should not have had to acknowledge defeat at your very first inquiry. Oh, you needn't care about that, laughed Deborah, in a rather hard tone for her. She had made her point, but was rather more frightened than pleased at her success. There must be a thousand articles you naturally would lack. I could name— Don't! Don't! the little woman put in breathlessly. I have many odd things, but of course not everything. For instance, but here she caught sight of the other's abstracted eye and dropped the subject. The sadness, which now spread over the very interesting countenance of her visitor, offered her an excuse for the introduction of a far more momentous topic, one she had burned to introduce, but had not known how. Mrs. Scoville, I hear that Judge Ostrander has got your daughter a piano. That is really a wonderful thing for him to do. Not that he is so close with his money, but that he has always been so set against all gaiety and companionship. I suppose you did not know the shock it would be to him when you asked Bella to let you into the gates. No, I didn't know, but it is all right now. The judge seems to welcome the change. Miss Weeks, did you know Algernon Etheridge well enough to tell me if he was as good and irreproachable a man as they all say? He was a good man, but he had a dreadfully obstinate streak in his disposition and very set ideas. I have heard that he and the judge used to argue over a point for hours, and he was most always wrong. For instance, he was wrong about Oliver. Oliver? Judge Ostrander's son. You know, Mr. Etheridge wanted him to study for a professorship, but the boy was determined to go into journalism, and you see what a success he has made of it. As a professor, he would probably have been a failure. Was this difference of opinion on the calling he should pursue? The cause of Oliver's leaving home in the way he did? continued Deborah, conscious of walking on very thin ice. But Miss Weeks rather welcomed than resented this curiosity. Indeed, she was never tired of enlarging upon the Ostranders. It was therefore, with a very encouraging alacrity, she responded, I have never thought so. The judge would not quarrel with Oliver on so small a point as that. My idea is, though I never talk of it much, 
that they had a great quarrel over Mr. Etheridge. Oliver never liked the old student. I watched them, and I've seen. He hated his coming to the house so much. He hated the way his father singled him out and deferred to him and made him the confidant of all his troubles. When they went on their walks, Oliver always hung back, and more than once I have seen him make a grimace of distaste when his father urged him forward. He was only a boy, I know, but his dislikes meant something, and if it ever happened that he spoke out his whole mind, you may be sure that some very bitter words passed. Was this meant as an innuendo? Could it be that she shared the very serious doubts of Deborah's anonymous correspondent? Impossible to tell. Such nervous, fussy little bodies often possess minds of unexpected subtlety. Deborah gave up all hope of understanding her and accepting her statements at their face value. Effusively remarked, You must have a very superior mind to draw such conclusions from the little you have seen. I have heard many explanations given for the breach you name, but never any so reasonable. A flash from the spinster's wary eye, then a burst of courage and the quick retort. And what explanation does Oliver himself give? You ought to know, Mrs. Scoville. The attack was as sudden as it was unexpected. Deborah flushed and trimmed her sails for this new tack, and insinuating gently, Then you have heard waited for the enlightenment those words were likely to evoke. It came quickly enough. That he expected to marry your daughter? Oh, yes, Mrs. Scoville, it's a common talk here now. I hope you don't mind my mentioning it. Deborah's head went up. She faced the other fairly, with the look born of mother passion, and mother passion only. Ruther is blameless in this matter, she protested. She was brought up in ignorance of what I felt sure would prove a handicap and misery to her. She loves Oliver, as she will never love any other man. But when she was told her real name, and understood fully what that name carries with it, she declined to saddle him with her shame. That's her story, Miss Weeks. One that hardly fits her appearance, which is very delicate. And let me add, Having once accepted her father's name, she refuses to be known by any other. I have brought her to Shelby, where, to our own surprise, and Ruther's great happiness, we have been taken in by Judge Ostrander, an act of kindness for which we are very grateful. Miss Weeks got up, took down one of her rarest treasures from an old etagere standing in one corner, and laid it in Mrs. Scoville's hand. For your daughter, she declared, noble girl. I hope she will be happy. The mother was touched, but not quite satisfied yet of the giver's real feelings towards Oliver. She was not willing to conclude the interview until she understood her small hostess better. She therefore looked admiringly at the vase. It was really choice, and after thanking his donor warmly, proceeded to remark, there is but one thing that will ever make Ruther happy, and that she cannot have unless a miracle occurs. Oliver? suggested the other, with a curious, wan little smile. Deborah nodded. And what miracle? 
Oh, I do not wonder you pause. This is not the day of miracles, but if my belief in my husband could be shared, if by some fortuitous chance I should be enabled to clear his name, might not love and loyalty be left to do the rest? Wouldn't the judge's objections in that case be removed? What do you think, Miss Weeks? The warmth, the abandon, the confidence she expressed in this final question were indescribable. Miss Weeks's conventional mannerisms melted before it. She could no more withstand the witchery of this woman's tone and manner than if she had been a man subdued by the charm of sex. But nothing, not even her newly awakened sympathy for this agreeable woman, could make her untruthful. She might believe in the miracle of a reversal of judgment in the case of a falsely condemned criminal, but not of an Ostrander accepting humiliation, even at the hands of love. She felt that in justice to this new friendship, she should say so. Do you ask me? she began. Then I feel that I must admit to you that the Ostrander pride is proverbial. Oliver may think he would be happy if he married your daughter under these changed conditions, but I should be fearful of the reaction which would certainly follow when he found that old shames are not so easily outlived. There is temper in the family, though you would never think it to hear the judge speak. And if your daughter is delicate— Is it of her you are thinking? interrupted Deborah with a new tone in her voice. Not altogether. You see, I knew Oliver first. And are fond of him? Fond is a big word. But I cannot help having some feeling for the boy I have seen grow up from a babe in arms to a healthy, brilliant manhood. And having this feeling. There, we will say no more about it. The little woman's attitude and voice were almost prayerful. You have judgment enough for two. Besides, the miracle has not happened, she interjected, with a smile which seemed to say it never would be. Deborah sighed. Whether or not it was quite an honest expression of her feeling, we will not inquire. She was there for a definite purpose, and her way to it was, as yet, far from plain. All that she had really learned was this, that it was she, and not Miss Weeks, who was playing a part, and that whatever her inquiries, she need have no fear of rousing suspicion against Oliver in a mind already dominated by a belief in John Scoville's guilt. The negative with which she followed up the sigh was consequently one of sorrowful acceptance. She made haste, however, to qualify it with the remark, But I have not given up all hope. My cause is too promising. True, I may not succeed in marrying Ruther into the Ostrander family, even if it should be my good lot to clear her father's name. But my efforts would have one good result, as precious perhaps more precious than the one I name. She would no longer have to regard that father as guilty of a criminal act. If such relief can be hers, she should have it. But how am I to proceed? I know as well as anyone how impossible the task must prove. 
unless I can light upon fresh evidence. And where am I to get that? Only from some new witness. Miss Weeks' polite smile took on an expression of indulgence. This roused Deborah's pride, and, hesitating no longer, she anxiously remarked, Sometimes thought that Oliver Ostrander might be that witness. He certainly was in the ravine the night Algernon Etheridge was struck down. Had she been an experienced actress of years, she could not have thrown into this question a greater lack of all innuendo. Miss Weeks, already under her fascination, heard the tone, but never thought to notice the quick rise and fall of her visitor's uneasy bosom, and so unwarned, responded with all due frankness. I know he was, but how will that help you? He had no testimony to give in relation to this crime, or he would have given it. That is true. The admission fell mechanically from Deborah's lips. She was not conscious even of making it. She was struggling with the shock of the simple statement, confirming her own fear that Oliver had actually been in the ravine at the hour of Etheridge's murder. Not even a boy would hide knowledge of that kind, she stubbornly continued. Then, as her emotion choked her into silence, she sat with piteous eyes searching Miss Sweek's face till she had recovered her voice when she added this vital question. How did you know that Oliver was in the ravine that night? I only guessed it. Well, it was in this way. I do not often keep my eye on my neighbors. Oh, no, Miss Weeks. But that night, I chanced to be looking over the way just at the minute Mr. Etheridge came out, and something I saw in his manner, and in that of the judge who had followed him to the door, and in that of Oliver, who, cap on head, was leaning towards them from a window over the porch, made me think that a controversy was going on between the two old people, of which Oliver was the subject. This naturally interested me, and I watched them long enough to see Oliver suddenly raise his fist and shake it at old Etheridge. Then, in great rage, slam down the window and disappear inside. The next minute, and before the two below had done talking, I caught another glimpse of him as he dashed around the corner of the house on his way to the ravine. And Mr. Etheridge? Oh, he left soon after. I watched him as he went by, his long cloak flapping in the wind. Little did I think he would never pass my window again. So interested were they both, the one in telling to new, in sympathetic ears, the small experiences of her life, the other in listening for the chance phrase or the unconscious admission which would fix the suspicion already struggling into strong life within her breast, that neither for the moment realized the strangeness of the situation or that it was in connection with the crime for which the husband of one of them had suffered. They were raking up this past and gossiping over its petty details. Possibly recollection returned to them both. When Mrs. Scoville sighed and said, It couldn't have been very long after you saw him that Mr. Etheridge was struck. 
only some twenty minutes it takes just that long for a man to walk from this corner to the bridge and you never heard where oliver went it was never talked about at the time later when some hint got about of his having been in the ravine that night he said he had gone up the ravine not down it and we all believed him madam of course of course what a discriminating mind you have miss weeks and what a wonderful memory to think that after all these years you can recall that oliver had a cap on his head when he looked out of the window at his father and mr etheridge if you were asked i have no doubt you could tell its very color was it the peaked one the like of which you haven't in your marvelous collection yes i could swear to it and miss weeks gave a little laugh which sounded incongruous enough to deborah in whose heart at that moment a leaf was turned upon the past which left the future hopelessly blank must you go deborah had risen mechanically don't i beg till you have relieved my mind about judge ostrander don't suppose that there is really anything behind that door of his which it would alarm anyone to see then deborah understood miss weeks but she was ready for her i've never seen anything of the sort said she and i make up his bed in that very room every morning oh and miss weeks drew a deep breath no article of immense value such as that rare old bit of real satsuma in the cabinet over there no answered deborah with all the patience she could muster judge ostrander seems very simple in his tastes i doubt if he would know satsuma if he saw it miss weeks sighed yes he has never expressed the least wish to look over my shelves so the double fence means nothing a whim ejaculated deborah making quietly for the door the judge likes to walk at night when quite through with his work and he doesn't like his ways to be noted but he prefers the lawn now i hear a step out there every night well it's something to know that he leads a more normal life than formerly sighed the little lady as she prepared to usher her guest out come again mrs scoville and if i may i will drop in and see you some day deborah accorded her permission and made her final adieu she felt as if a hand which had been stealing up her chest had suddenly gripped her throat choking her she had found the man who had cast that fatal shadow down the ravine twelve years before end of chapter seventeen unwelcome truce Chapter 18 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 18 Reflections. Deborah re entered the judge's house a stricken woman. Evading Ruther, she ran upstairs, taking off her things mechanically on the way. She must have an hour alone. She must learn her first lesson in self control and justifiable duplicity before she came under her daughter's eyes she must here she reached her room door and was about to enter when at a sudden thought she paused 
and let her eyes wander down the hall till they settled on another door, the one she had closed behind her the night before, with the deep resolve never to open it again except under compulsion. Had the compulsion arisen? Evidently. For a few minutes later, she was standing in one of the dim corners of Oliver's musty room, reopening a book which she had taken down from the shelves on her former visit. She remembered it from its torn back and the fact that it was an algebra. Turning to the fly-leaf, she looked again at the names and schoolboy phrases she had seen scribbled all over its surface for the one which she remembered as, I hate algebra. It had not been a very clearly written algebra, and she would never have given this interpretation to the scrawl had she been in a better mood. Now another thought had come to her, and she wanted to see the word again. Was she glad or sorry to have yielded to this impulse, when by a closer inspection she perceived that the word was not algebra at all, but Algernon, I hate a Etheridge, I hate a E, I hate Algernon E, all over the page, and here and there on other pages, sometimes in characters so rubbed and faint as to be almost unreadable, and again so pressed into the paper by a vicious pencil point as to have broken their way through to the leaf underneath. The work of an ill-conditioned schoolboy, but this hate dated back many years. Paler than ever, and with hands trembling almost to the point of incapacity, she put the book back and flew to her own room, the prey of thoughts bitter almost to madness. It was the second time in her life that she had been called upon to go through this precise torture. She remembered the hour only too well, when first it was made known to her that one in closest relation to herself was suspected of a hideous crime. And now— with her mind cleared towards him, and readjusted to new developments, this crushing experience of seeing equal indications of guilt in another almost as dear and almost as closely knit into her thoughts and future expectations as John had ever been. Can one endure a repetition of such horror? She had never gauged her strength, but it did not seem possible. Besides of the two blows, this seemed the heaviest and the most revolting. Then only her own happiness and honor were involved. Now it was Reuther's. And the fortitude which sustained her through the ignominy of her own trouble failed her at the prospect of Reuther's. And again, the two cases were not equal. Her husband had had traits which, in a manner, had prepared her for the ready suspicion of people. But Oliver was a man of reputation and kindly heart, and yet in the course of time this had come, and the question once agitating her as to whether Reuther was a fit mate for him had now evolved into this. Was he a fit mate for her? She had rather have died, nay, have had Reuther die, than to find herself forced to weigh and decide so momentous a question. For however she might feel about it, not a single illusion remained as to whose hand had made use of John Scoville's stick to strike down Algernon Etheridge. How could she have when she came to piece the whole story together and weigh the facts she had accumulated against Oliver with those which had proved so fatal to her husband? First, the uncontrolled temper of the lad, hints of which she was daily receiving. Secondly, 
his absolute if unreasonable hatred of the man thus brutally assailed she knew what such hatred was and how it eats into an undeveloped mind she had gone through its agonies herself when she was a young girl and knew its every stage with jealousy and personal distaste for a start it was easy to trace the revolt of this boyish heart from the intrusive ever-present mentor who not only shared his father's affections but made use of them to influence that father against the career he had chosen in favor of one he not only disliked but for which he lacked all aptitude she saw it all from the moment his pencil dug into the paper these tell-tale words i hate old e to that awful and final one when the detested student fell in the woods and his reign over the judgment as well as over the heart of judge ostrander was at an end in hate bitter boiling long-repressed hate was found the motive for an act so out of harmony with the condition and upbringing of a lad like oliver she need look for no other but motive goes for little if not supported by evidence was it possible with this new theory for a basis to reconstruct the story of this crime without encountering the contradiction of some well-known fact she would see first this matter of the bludgeon left as her husband declared leaning against the old oak in the bottom of the ravine all knew the tree and just where it stood if oliver in his eagerness to head off etheridge at the bridge had rushed straight down into the gully from ostrander lane he would almost strike this tree in his descent the diagram sketched on page one eighty five will make this plain what more natural then than for him to catch up the stick he saw there even if his mind had not been deliberately set on violence a weapon is a weapon and an angry man feels easier with something of the kind in hand armed then in this unexpected way but evidently not yet decided upon crime or why his nervous whittling of the stick he turned towards the bridge following the meandering of the stream which in time led him across the bare spot where she had seen the shadow that it was his shadow no one could doubt who knew all the circumstances and that she should have leaned just long enough from the ruins to mark the shadow and take it for her husband's but not long enough to see the man himself and so detect her error was one of those anomalies of crime which make for judicial errors john scurrying away through the thicket towards claymore oliver threading his way down the ravine and she hurrying away from the ruin above with her lost ruther in hand such was the situation at this critical moment afterwards when she came back for the child's bucket some power had withheld her from looking again into the ravine or she might have been witness to the meeting at the bridge and so been saved the misery and shame of believing as long as she did that the man who intercepted algernon etheridge at that place was her unhappy husband the knife with the broken point which she had come upon in her search among the lad's discarded effects proved only too conclusively that it was his hand which had whittled the end of the bludgeon for the bit of steel left in the wood and the bit lost from the knife were to her exact eye of the same size and an undoubted fit oliver's remorse the judge's discovery of his guilt a discovery which may have been soon but probably was late so late that the penalty of the doing had already been paid by the innocent can only be guessed from the terrible sequel 
a son dismissed, a desolated home in which the father lived as a recluse. How the mystery cleared as she looked at it, the house barred from guests, the double fence where, hidden from all eyes, the wretched father might walk his dreary round when night forbade him rest, or memory became a whip of scorpions to lash him into fury or revolt. The stairs never passed. How could he look upon rooms where his wife had dreamed the golden dreams of motherhood, and the boy passed his days of innocent youth, ay, and his own closed-up room, guarded by Bella from intrusion, as long as breath remained to animate his sinking body? What was its secret? Why, Oliver's portrait! Had this been seen, marked as it was for all men's reprobation? Nothing could have stemmed inquiry an inquiry was to be dreaded as Judge Ostrander's own act had shown. Not till he had made his clumsy attempt to cover this memorial of love and guilt and rehanging it thus hidden, where it would attract less attention, had she been admitted to his room. Alas, alas, that he had not destroyed it then and there, that clinging to habits old as his grief and the remorse which had undoubtedly devoured him for the part he had played in this case of perverted justice. He had trusted to a sheet of paper to cover what nothing on earth could cover. Once justice were aroused, or the wrath of God awakened. Deborah shuddered. Ay, the mystery had cleared, but only to enshroud her spirits anew, and make her long with all her bursting heart and shuddering soul that death had been her portion before ever she had essayed to lift the veil held down so tightly by these two remorseful men. But was her fault irremediable? The only unanswerable connection between this old crime and Oliver lay in the evidence she had herself collected. As she had every intention of suppressing this evidence, and as she had small dread of anyone else digging out the facts to which she only possessed a clue, might she not hope that any suspicions raised by her inquiries would fall like a house of cards when she withdrew her hand from the toppling structure? She would make her first effort and see. Mr. Black had heard a complaint. He should be the first to learn that the encouragement she had received was so small that she had decided to accept her present good luck without further query and not hark back to a past which most people had buried. End of chapter 18 Reflections Chapter 19 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 19 Allison Black You began it, as women begin most things without thought and a due weighing of consequences and now you propose to drop it in the same freakish manner. Isn't that it? Deborah Scoville lifted her eyes in manifest distress and fixed them deprecatingly upon her interrogator. She did not like his tone, which was dry and suspiciously sarcastic, and she did not like his attitude, which was formal and totally devoid of all sympathy. Instinctively, she pushed her veil still further from her features, as she deprecatingly replied, You are but echoing your sex in criticizing mine as impulsive, and you are quite within your rights in doing this. Women are impulsive. They are even freakish. But it is given to one now and then to recognize this fact, 
and acknowledge it. I hope I am of this number. I hope that I have the judgment to see when I have committed a mistake, and to stop short before I make myself ridiculous. The lawyer smiled, a tight-lipped, acrid sort of smile, which nevertheless expressed as much admiration as he ever allowed himself to show. Judgment, eh? he echoed. You stop because your judgment tells you that you were on the point of making a fool of yourself. No other reason, eh? Is not that the best which can be given a hard-headed, clear-eyed lawyer like yourself? Would you have me go on, with no real evidence to back my claims? Rouse up this town to reconsider his case, when I have nothing to talk about but my husband's oath, and a shadow I cannot verify? Then Miss Weeks's neighborliness failed in point? She was not as interesting as you had a right to expect from my recommendation? Miss Weeks is a very chatty and agreeable woman, but she cannot tell what she does not know. Mr. Black smiled. The woman delighted him. The admiration which he had hitherto felt for her person and for the character which could so develop through misery and reproach as to make her in twelve short years the exponent of all that was most attractive and bewitching in women seemed likely to extend to her mind. Sagacious, eh? And cautious, eh? He was hardly prepared for such perfection, and let the transient lighting up of his features speak for him till he was ready to say, You find the judge very agreeable, now that you know him better? Yes, Mr. Black, but what has that got to do with the point at issue? And she smiled, but not just in his manner, nor with quite as little effect. Much! he growled. It might make it easier for you to reconcile yourself to the existing order of things. I am reconciled to them simply from necessity, was her gentle response. Nothing is more precious to me than Ruther's happiness. I should but endanger it further by raising false hopes. That is why I have come to cry halt. Madam, I commend your decision. It is that of a wise and considerate woman. Your child's happiness is, of course, of paramount importance to you. But why should you characterize your hopes as false, just when there seems to be some justification for them? Her eyes widened, and she regarded him with the stimulation of surprise, which interested without imposing upon him. I do not understand you, said she. Have you come upon some clue? Have you heard something which I have not? The smile with which he seasoned his reply was of a very different nature from that which he had previously bestowed upon her. It prepared her possibly for the shock of his words. I hardly think so, said he. If I do not mistake, we have been the recipients of the same communications. She started to her feet but sat again instantly. "'Pray explain yourself,' she urged. "'Who has been writing to you, and what have they written?' she added, presuming a little upon her fascinations as a woman to win an honest response. "'Must I speak first? If it was a tilt, it was between even forces. "'It would be gentlemanly in you to do so. 
but i am not of a gentlemanly temper i deal with no other said she but with what a glance and in what a tone a man may hold out long and if a lawyer and a bachelor more than long but there is a point at which he succumbs mr black had reached that point smoothing his brow and allowing a more kindly expression to creep into his regard he took two or three crushed and folded papers from a drawer beside him and holding them none too plainly in sight remarked very quietly but with legal firmness do not let us play about the bush any longer you have announced your intention of making no further attempt to discover the man who in your eyes merited the doom accorded to john scoville your only reason for this if you are the woman i think you lies in your fear of giving further opportunity to the misguided rancor of an irresponsible writer of anonymous epistles am i not right madam beaten beaten by a direct assault because she possessed the weaknesses as well as the pluck of a woman she could control the language of her lips but not their quivering she could meet his eye with steady assurance but she could not keep the pallor from her cheeks or subdue the evidences of her heart's turmoil her pitiful glance acknowledged her defeat which he already saw mirrored in his eyes taking it for an answer he said gently enough that we may understand each other at once i will mention the person who has been made the subject of these attacks he don't speak the name she prayed leaning forward and laying her gloved hand upon his sleeve it is not necessary the whole thing is an outrage of course he echoed with some of his natural brusqueness and the rankest folly but to some follies we have to pay attention and i fear that we shall have to pay attention to this one if only for your daughter reuther's sake you cannot wish her to become the butt of these scandalous attempts no no the words escaped her before she realized that in their utterance she had given up irretrievably her secret you consider them scandalous most scandalous she emphatically returned with the vivacity and seeming candor such as he had seldom seen equaled even on the witness-stand his admiration is quite evident it did not prevent him however from asking quite abruptly in what shape and by what means did this communication reach you i found it lying on the walk between the gates the same by which judge ostrander leaves the house yes came in faint reply i see that you share my fears if one such scrap can be thrown over the fence why shouldn't another be men who indulge themselves in writing anonymous accusations seldom limit themselves to one effusion i will stake my word that the judge has found more than one on his lawn she could not have responded if she would her mouth was dry her tongue half paralyzed what was coming the glint in her lawyer's eye forewarned her that something scarcely in consonance with her hopes and wishes might be expected 
The judge has seen and read these barefaced insinuations against his son and has not turned this whole town topsy-turvy. What are we to think of that? A lion does not stop to meditate. He springs. And Archibald Ostrander has the nature of a lion. There is nothing of the fox or even of the tiger in him. Mrs. Scoville, this is a very serious matter. I do not wonder that you are a trifle overwhelmed by the results of your ill-considered investigations. Does the town know? Has the thing become a scandal, a byword? Miss Weeks gave no proof of ever having heard one word of this dreadful, not-to-be-foreseen business. That is good news. You relieve me. Perhaps it is not a general topic as yet. Then shortly, and with lawyer-like directness, show me the letter which has disturbed all your plans. I haven't it here. You didn't bring it? No, Mr. Black, why should I? I had no premonition that I should ever be induced to show it to anyone, least of all to you. Look over these. Do they look at all familiar? She glanced down at the crumpled sheets and half-sheets he had spread out before her. They were similar in appearance to the one she had picked up on the judge's grounds, but the language more forcible, as witness sees. When a man is trusted to defend another on trial for his life, he's supposed to know his business. How came John Scoville to hang without a thought being given to the man who hated A. Etheridge like poison? I could name a certain chap who more than once in the old days boasted that he'd like to kill the fellow, and it wasn't Scoville or any one of his low-down stamp either. A high and mighty name shouldn't shield a man who sent a poor, unfriended wretch to his death in order to save his own bacon. Horrible, murmured Deborah, drawing back in terror of her own emotion. It's the work of some implacable enemy taking advantage of the situation I have created. Mr. Black, this man must be found and made to see that no one will believe, not even Scoville's widow. There! You needn't go any further with that, admonished the lawyer. I will manage him, but first we must make sure to rightly locate this enemy of the Ostranders. You do detect some resemblance between this writing and the specimen you have at home? They are very much alike. You believe one person wrote them? I do. Have you any idea who this person is? No, why should I? No suspicion? Not the least in the world. I ask because of this, he explained, picking out another letter and smilingly holding it out towards her. She read it with flushed cheeks. Listen to the lady. You can't listen to any one nicer. What she wants, she can get. There's a witness you never saw or heard of. A witness they never heard of? What witness? Scarcely could she lift her eyes from the paper. Yet there was a possibility, of course, that the statement was a lie. Stuff, isn't it? muttered the lawyer. Never mind, we'll soon have hold of the writer. His face had taken on a much more serious aspect, 
and she could no longer complain of his indifference or even of his sarcasm. "'You will give me another opportunity of talking with you on this matter,' pursued he. "'If you do not come here, you may expect to see me at Judge Ostrander's. I do not quite like the position into which you have been thrown by these absurd insinuations from some unknown person, who may be thinking to do you a service, but who you must feel is very far from being your friend. It may even lead to your losing the home which has been so fortunately opened for you. If this occurs, you may count on my friendship, Mrs. Scoville. I may have failed you once, but I will not fail you twice. Surprised, almost touched, she held out her hand with a cordial thank you, in which emotion struggled with her desire to preserve an appearance of complete confidence in Judge Ostrander, and incidentally in his son. Then being on her feet by this time, she turned to go, anxious to escape further embarrassment from a perspicacity she no longer possessed the courage to meet. The lawyer appeared to acquiesce in the movement of departure. But when he saw her about to vanish through the door, some impulse of compunction, as real as it was surprising, led him to call her back and seat her once more in the chair she had so lately left. "'I cannot let you go,' said he, "'until you understand that these insinuations from a self-called witness would not be worth our attention if there were not a few facts to give color to his wild claims.' Oliver Ostrander was in that ravine connecting with Dark Hollow, very near the time of the onslaught on Mr. Etheridge, and he certainly hated the man and wanted him out of the way. The whole town knows that, with one exception. You know that exception? I think so, she acceded, taking a fresh grip upon her emotions. That this was anything more than a coincidence has never been questioned. He was not even summoned as a witness. With the judge's high reputation in mind, I do not think a single person could have been found in those days to suggest any possible connection between this boy and a crime so obviously premeditated. But people's minds change with time and events, and Oliver Ostrander's name uttered in this connection today would not occasion the same shock to the community as it would have done then. You understand me, Mrs. Scoville? You allude to the unexplained separation between himself and father, and not to any failure on his part to sustain the reputation of his family? Oh, he has made a good position for himself and earned universal consideration. But that doesn't weigh against the prejudices of people, roused by such eccentricities as have distinguished the conduct of these two men. Alas, she murmured, frightened to the soul for the first time, both by his manner and his words. "'You know and I know,' he went on with a grimness possibly suggested by his subject, "'that no mere whim lies back of such a preposterous seclusion "'as that of Judge Ostrander behind his double fence. "'Sons do not cut loose from fathers or fathers from sons without good cause. "'You can see, then, that the peculiarities of their mutual history "'form but a poor foundation.' 
for any light refutation of this scandal should it reach the public mind judge ostrander knows this and you know that he knows this hence your distress have i not read your mind madam no one can read my mind any more than they can read judge ostrander's she avowed in a last desperate attempt to preserve her secret you may think you have done so but what assurance can you have of the fact you are strong in their defence said he and you will need to be if the matter ever comes up the shadows from dark hollow reach far and engulf all they fall upon mr black she had re-risen the better to face him you want something from me a promise or a condition no said he this is my affair only as it affects you i simply wish to warn you of what you might have to face and what judge ostrander will have to face here i drop the lawyer and speak only as a man if he is not ready to give a more consistent explanation of the curious facts i have mentioned i cannot warn him mr black you of course not nobody can warn him possibly no one should warn him but i have warned you and now as a last word let us hope that no warning is necessary and that we shall soon see the last of these calumniating letters and everything readjusted once more on a firm and natural basis judge ostrander's action in reopening his house in the manner and for the purpose he has has predisposed many in his favour it may before we know it make the past almost forgotten meanwhile you will make an attempt to discover the author of these anonymous attacks to save you from annoyance obliged to make acknowledgment of the courtesy if not kindness prompted in these words mrs scoville expressed her gratitude and took farewell in a way which did not seem to be at all displeasing to the crusty lawyer but when she found herself once more in the streets her anxiety and suspense took on a new phase what was at the bottom of mr black's contradictory assertions sympathy with her as he would have her believe or a secret feeling of animosity towards a man he openly professed to admire end of chapter nineteen allison black everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.